0: Well, we are starting a new uh, series this week. Um, something I try to do uh, at least once a year is to have a, a a kind of a big picture sermon series where we stand back a little bit and try to get an idea of kind of what what is what is the big picture you know it 's easy enough to read a story about you know the Good Samaritan or something. And get get a little nugget of of um, something that we can apply in our lives or something like that. But sometimes it's good to stand back and really try to understand what is what is the big picture. What is God up to? What what is God about? And um, so we usually either either look at that or we look at given given what God is up to. What is our role? What what does God want the church to do and be in the world? So so that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks. We're going to look at um, uh, kind of the the road map. Um, I'm calling the series The Roadmap. What is, what is it that God is up to? And, and where, do, where do we fit in it? And, um, I was, I was looking at this as I was preparing the study. I came across something, A uh, Council is reading a book called Growing Young. And I came across this. They call it The Narrative Arc of Scripture. And I know it's really small. And that's really the problem is that they propose that you can, you can easily summarize what God is doing by just remembering this 11 point diagram and knowing all the different pieces and how they all fit together. And I thought, man, I don't know about you, but I know 11 is too many for me to remember. It's like high school biology trying to remember, you know, the Krebs cycle or something. It's like I, I couldn't do it. So I thought, what would I do? You know, if, if I get to steal from all the, all the geniuses out there and I can kind of condense it down myself, what would I do? And I came up with a five point, a five point roadmap. So these are the points in my roadmap. They are creation, covenant, king, new covenant, And new creation, and so that's that's really the roadmap that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to look at creation, and creation as as Christians understand creation, Christian uh, uh, Christians have two big ideas about creation. The first idea is that God made everything, and everything God made was good. God doesn't make mistakes, so creation is by its nature a good thing. So we believe that. But we also believe that something has gone wrong. That creation is good, and yet something has gone wrong. Now the first part of that is not hard to, not hard to kind of get your head behind. It's easy for people, especially people in Alaska, to say creation is good, right? Uh, when I, when I was here about a year, um, I posted a picture to Facebook or something like that, and somebody I used to know somewhere else said, boy, those are beautiful pictures, you know, where do you get them? And I said, I step outside my door. Um, because, Because this is Alaska, and really all you've got to do to get a good picture of something beautiful in Alaska is, is have a camera, because so much of Alaska is so beautiful. So we see these pictures, we see things like this, and, and we know that Alaska truly is a beautiful place. The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies display his craftsmanship. Now that's a problem for us in Alaska, because we don't get to see that night sky for half the year. So we don't, we don't get to see the stars that the psalmist is talking about all during the summer. And during the winter, if we go outside, it's too cold to stay there and admire them. But, but if you do, we have something that people in the lower 48 don't have. We get to see, um, we get to see the aurora. So, so on the rare occasions when somebody will call me at 3 a.m. and say, Oh, they're out tonight, um, you can actually see something beautiful. Um, even in the night sky here in Alaska. So it's all very easy. And so this is the way I would summarize it, um, that there's just so much beauty in Alaska. It's so easy to see things that are beautiful. We don't have any problem with the first half of this this notion. We have no trouble with the idea that creation is good. But the second half, the idea that something isn't right, that's not hard either. We know too well and especially as people in Alaska we just we just prayed for the problem of violence alaska is near the top of all the rankings um, anchorage anchorage is, is near the top of the rankings for different types of violence um, for domestic violence for um, for drug abuse for suicide and we actually do top the rankings uh, uh, anchorage is the worst city in the in the country for the crime of rape so we know something is not right. It's a beautiful place. Alaska's gorgeous. And yet there's so much ugliness in it. A couple of years ago, a pastor who was leaving Alaska, he'd spent several years as a pastor here. And he and I were talking and he said the most beautiful thing he'd seen in his life was in Alaska. That Alaska is such a beautiful place. And he said, the ugliest things I've ever seen are in Alaska. Now, we know it's not limited to Alaska. There's all kinds of violence and poverty around the world. We remember Aleppo, and we see slums, and we recoil from them. We know that something is not right for all the good that we believe about creation. We know that something is not right. And it makes us particularly uneasy because, because there's this sense that the ugliest things we see, people are implicated. People seem to be nearby when there's something ugly in creation. Now, maybe that's just bias. If we were to talk to the wildebeest, maybe they'd say, no, there's ugliness out there in nature, too. I don't know. But we know for sure that there's so much ugliness in the creation that God made good. So our first, our first big idea, the first big idea of creation is that, is that God made everything, and everything that God made is good. But the second part is that something has gone wrong. Now, when we turn to the scriptures to help us understand this, what we learn is that it's not just people. You know, we, we can't talk to the wildebeest and see its perspective, but Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he says that all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. He says it's not just us. But he says also that people have a particular responsibility for what has gone wrong. And he refers back to the book of Genesis. He says, he he recalls, the Lord God replaced the man in the garden to tend and watch over it, that God made humans in his image and then put us into the world to tend and watch over it. And so if something goes bad, it's on our watch. That we were put here for a reason. And when things are not right in the world, we have particular responsibility. Maybe you remember last spring, there's the notion that that we we function in the world or are meant to function in the world like a scarecrow in a field. We are made in the image of its creator. And the idea is that if we're functioning properly, then that field has a reflection of the farmer in it, and the crows are scared away. I don't know if that works in farming, but that's the idea in Scripture, is that humans are made in God's image with the idea that we will reflect God's glory into the world, and the world will be a beautiful place. And so if the world is not good, if we look out and we see war and violence, if we see rape and murder, then we have to ask ourselves, Whose fault is this? Now, because we're people, the way we answer that is we say, not mine, right? It's not my fault. We say, it's God's fault. And we ask the question, well, maybe creation really wasn't all that good to begin with. Maybe there is something intrinsically flawed with creation. The reason that the world is a mess is because it's kind of a checkerboard, and there's good places and bad parts But the bad parts were put in there by design. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. Because we're people, and we like to shift responsibility. Maybe the way we shift responsibility is we say, look, okay, I cop to it. Okay, I'm a mess. Okay, but who made me, right? I'm a mess, not because of my own fault, but because I was poorly made by the Creator. And so one way or the other, we try to find a way to shift the responsibility for what's broken in the world off of us, off of the scarecrows, and back onto the farmer. And that brings us to our reading today from Job. Job is a Job is an awesome book. It's just too long, though. But I've never been disappointed when I read from Job. It's it's just a great book, and I encourage you to read the book of Job. Um, in the book of Job, Job encounters just horrific misfortune. His his family. Um, dies in a a tragedy. Everything he owns is stolen from him by raiders, and then he, uh, he comes down with a terrible disease. Everything that could possibly go wrong to Job does. And the narrator tells us it's not Job's fault. The narrator clues us in, kind of shows us behind the scenes, and we know it's not because of anything that Job did. It's not Job's fault. But then Job's friends come along and say, Of course it's your fault. Job, these things happen for a reason. You must have sinned somehow. And if you would just figure out the way you sinned, then God wouldn't have to punish you for it. So if you would just quit sinning, then bad things wouldn't happen to you. And Job protests his innocence. And remember, we as the reader know Job is right. Job is innocent. But Job says, this is not my problem. This is God's problem. This is God's fault. And this goes on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for 37 chapters. They argue this out, and it's just beautiful to read. And I think you'll see things you recognize if you spend some time reading the book of Job. It's a great book. But finally, after 37 chapters, God speaks. And what God says to Job is this. He says, who are you to judge me? He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined the earth's dimensions and stretched out its surveying line? He says, this is not some, some accidental thing that just kind of uh, got slapped together and I did a bad job, but I managed to beat it, beat it to, to fit and paint it to match. No. I measured this out. I thought this through. The plan was good from the beginning. I planned it to perfection. And then he says, I built it. What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. He says, there are witnesses who looked at creation, watched me build it and testify that creation is good, it was good from the start. And he says, okay, okay, this goes on for two chapters. So, so I'm condensing it, but he says, he says, okay, let's suppose that you just got handed creation, right? Forget, forget how to build it in the first place. But let's just suppose I just handed you the keys and say, you run it now. Could you do that? He says, can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the clusters of the Pleiades or the loosening the cords of Orion? Can you control the movement of stars in the sky? No, of course you can't. Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? So we're back to the night sky again. These are the Pleiades. Um, and I don't know if we can see them in Alaska. There's summer constellation. Um, Orion, um, you can see if you go to where it's dark enough. It's one of the most recognizable constellations in the sky, and, of course, that's the bear. Um, oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's the bear. Um, so um, the, we call it the Big Dipper, Ursa Major. So God says, could you even control the constellations? If somebody handed them to you, you can't do that. You don't know how to run the world. He says, okay, let's scale it down. Let's forget about constellations. Do you even understand a horse? Right? It's an everyday farm animal. Do you, do you understand this thing you look at every day and you see it? Do you have a clue about the horse? He says, he says, have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? He says, look up in the sky. See those birds. You have no idea how they do that. How can a bird fly through the air? He says, is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar? and spread its wings toward the south. The point that God is making is that Job is small. He's not trying to make Job feel bad. He's trying to make Job see reality, is that we are small. The the goal is not we should feel bad. God knows he made Job small. God is perfectly happy with Job being small. There's nothing wrong with Job being small. But he says, you don't understand what I'm doing. And that's still true today. I mean, two thousand years later, we're beginning to get some understanding of the laws of physics. We get a, a, a some under some glimmer glimmer of understanding about astrophysicists. You know how someone like Stephen Hawking can actually understand what makes stars function, what holds them together. We we have beginning to get some understanding of that. But but what we found is that even where people do begin to understand our world, they don't really. Because what they become is an expert in some tiny little piece of the world. And so if you ask, if you ask a, a, a biologist, do you understand the horse? They'll say, well, no, but, you know, I am the world's expert on horse cardiac endocrinology or something like that. But the rest of the horse, you know, I talk to other people if I have a question about the rest of the horse. We find that, that we are too small to understand the world, like Job. We don't understand creation. We don't understand what it is. But, Job, but God goes beyond that. God says, this problem is bigger than you realize. See, you say, Job, I've had some misfortune. And he did. He had the worst possible misfortune. But God says, you don't even understand how big the problem is. How could you possibly fix it? This is a cosmic problem. The dimensions of what has gone wrong with creation are huge. My plans for creation are bigger than you, Job. So there's nothing you can do to fix it. Paul was right. We know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So that's, that's where we start. We start with the problem of creation. A world that is made good, but has gone wrong. And we understand that we are implicated. We're implicated in the sense, at least, that God made us to reflect his glory in the world. And if we are in a world, if we're in a cosmos that is not glorious, then we are not doing what we were made to do. You don't have to get all the way to chapter 3 of Genesis to understand the problem. We don't have to read about Adam and Eve and Wonder whether it was really an apple or what kind of fruit, you know, how that all happened. We don't have to go there because right in chapter two, we see the problem. We see that God made people to reflect His glory into the world, to be those scarecrows. But the world is not filled with the glory of God. So that is, that is the starting place for our roadmap. That's every place, every journey has to begin somewhere, and that's the, that's the starting point for our journey. Now, I'd get kicked out of preacher school if I didn't give you something to do. You know the way that at the end of the sermon the preacher tells you you've got to go home and do something, you know, change your life or whatever. And the nature of this is that God's already let us off the hook. There's nothing you can do, right? How are you going to fix Orion? How You know, what's wrong with the Pleiades? How would you fix that? We can't fix it. If we work very hard, we may be able to keep it from getting worse in some small area. When we when we contribute to the food drive or something like that, we may keep the advance of chaos from moving this far. But we cannot fix the problem. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to take this home. What should God do? That's his problem. I mean, it's it's a worse problem we can imagine. Everything ugly in the world, everything ugly in Alaska, everything around the world... Not just today, but all through time. Everything outside of our world, everything in the entire cosmos that is wrong has thwarted God's plans. What should he do? What would you do if you were God? Now, he just told Job, you're not. But if you were, what would you do? Would you just kind of wad it all up and, you know, throw it in the wastebasket? Start over, you know, 2.0? What would you do if you were God? Would you just walk, it, uh, walk away and say, you know what? It was a dumb idea. I'm going to go do something else, you know. What would you do if your plans for creation had gone so terribly wrong? We're going to find out next week. So, let's pray. God, we thank you for all the beauty in this world, especially here in Alaska, where it is so easy to see something breathtaking. But Lord, it is so easy to see something that is stomach-turning. So, Lord, we pray for this creation. Um, as we As we reflect on what our faith tells us about how we got into this state, how things became so messed up, Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would fix what's wrong. And and yet, Lord, we know that we are part of that. We are not the scarecrows we should be. We are not reflecting your glory into the world the way you made us to. So, Lord, we pray for mercy, that as you go about your work of, of fixing what's wrong with creation, you will have mercy on us because we have a role in everything that has gone wrong. Lord, help us to reflect on this this week, to understand that every journey has a beginning. But if we walk from here in in despair, um, to remember that this is only the beginning and not the end. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.